Revelation 6, starting at verse 9. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal and Lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casts her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heavens departed as a scroll when it's rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their place, and the kings of the earth and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens, and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Horace Gray was an associate Supreme Court justice back at the turn of the 1900s. And he was chosen to that position after years of dedicated service in lower courts. He noticed that the, the fact that the United States reveled in the motto, and justice for all, that true justice was sometimes limited because judges were forced to follow the rule of law. For example, Horace Gray noticed one defendant in court managed to escape conviction based solely on a technicality. The man was going to get away with crimes. And before setting that man free, Justice Gray told him this, quote, I know that you are guilty and you know it. And I wish you remember that one day you will stand before a better and wiser judge and that there you will be dealt with according to justice and not according to law. God is a just God. It is a defining attribute of his character. Psalm 19 verse 9 says the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. In its most simple sense, when we talk about justice, justice is fairness. Justice is giving the appropriate award for doing well or the appropriate punishment for doing evil. When we speak of justice for all, we have to remember that justice cuts both ways whether it brings blessing for you or whether it brings wrath for you, the justice of God is absolutely certain. Psalm 96 verse 13 says, for he comes to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. Jeremiah 32 19 says, you are great in counsel and mighty in work for your eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men to give 
according, everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 27, the son of man shall come in the glory of his father with his angels and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Justice is a predominant theme in our text this morning. In this section of Revelation, the Lord Jesus still has the scroll of God's plan for human history. And he is breaking the seals from that scroll. There's seven seals and he is still breaking them one at a time. The first four seals represented last week sort of a single unit. Each one of them was a a different rider on horseback bringing judgment to the earth. The seventh seal, the last one, is sort of its own thing. We'll see in Revelation 8.1 that it ushers in seven trumpet-carrying angels. That leaves these two seals, seals number five and six, for us to consider together. And in these two seals, in our text, we see both aspects of God's justice. The lesson this text teaches us is this. In the purpose and plan of God, the day is soon coming when there will be justice for all. What will God's justice mean for you? Let's begin by looking at the fifth seal in verses 9 through 11. And we'll look at it in three parts. First, the congregation of the martyrs in verse 9. When he'd opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. So when this fifth seal is opened, an altar is revealed, and under that altar are the souls of disciples who had been martyred for their faithfulness. The cause of their death is clearly described in two phrases. First, it says that they were slain for the word of God. These faithful believers were uncompromising in their obedience to the Lord by holding fast to his word. The word of God is unpopular in the world and therefore obedience to the word of God will make you unpopular with the world. Second, they were slain for the, quote, testimony which they held. The word testimony here in Greek is the word martyria. It's the very source of our word martyr. It's a word that just means witness. Jesus uses the same word in Revelation 2.13 when he's talking to the church at Pergamos and he calls one of the, the men there who died Antipas, my faithful martyr. He was my faithful witness. He testified of Christ. He declared Christ. A martyr is not merely a person who dies for obedience to Christ. It is a person who lives to declare Christ. Paul wrote to his young friend Timothy and said that martyrdom is is part of the uh, deal with Christianity. He wrote and said, yea, all those who will who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Not only will witnesses for Jesus suffer, we will willingly suffer. The primary purpose of a disciple of Jesus is to promote 
the glory and gospel of Jesus, even if it costs us our lives in the process. When Jesus said his disciples must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him, it was to encourage a willingness to be obedient even to death. The cross was the instrument of death. Every disciple follows Jesus to the point of their death, even if that death seems to be inflicted on them before their time. Listen, our main goal is not to secure our self-preservation. Our goal is not to avoid every danger. It's to embrace the word and declare his glory. We have to take up our cross and follow him. Or maybe throughout history, it's kneel before the sword and follow him. Or stand before the rifles and follow him. Be willing to live lives with all the hazards of obedience that come with following him in order to declare his glory. If we lay claim to his righteousness, then shouldn't we at least trust his sovereignty and follow him? You may remember last week we saw how Jesus outlined these seals in his own sermon in Matthew 24. And here's what he said in Matthew 24, verse 9. They shall deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Now as such, it seems best in Revelation 6 here to see these martyrs not as well, this is all the Christian martyrs throughout history, but specifically as those believers in Christ who were killed for their faith during this tribulation period. Of course, we can't be dogmatic about that. However, I think it makes the most sense in the context. They're about to call, these martyrs are about to call out for justice on the earth against those who had shed their blood. And if this includes all the martyrs throughout Christian history, you could hardly argue that someone martyred a thousand years ago would be, would be calling out for justice on the people who murdered them. It seems that this is those who were martyred during this tribulation period. Now look at verse 10. The cry of the martyrs. They cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true? Do you not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? In some ways, this cry from the martyrs seems strange to us because it appears entirely focused on wrath being poured out on their murderers. And didn't the Lord Jesus set a different example than that? Right? He said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. The martyr Stephen in Acts chapter 7 laid down an example of forgiveness for his persecutors. To be clear, I'm not suggesting that any of us start following the pattern of verse 10 and, and cry out for vindication against those who have done us wrong. they are at a point in history, in the future, that we are not at that point in history. John MacArthur notes it like this. He says, a prayer for pardon is appropriate in a time of grace, but when grace is finished and judgment comes, prayer for divine, holy retribution are fitting. 
these martyrs are calling out for God to do what God has already declared that he will do. They're not accusing God of any kind of injustice. They're not petitioning him, petitioning him to, to execute an untimely justice. Their petition here is worded as a question. How long? Even more importantly, their question is about the timing of God's justice and wrath, not whether or not God is just and whether or not God will pour out his wrath. It's just the timing of it is what they've asked about. And that question is based on an important understanding of the very nature and characteristics of God. You see how they address God? How long, O Lord, holy and true. God is holy, and in his holiness, God will judge sin. His wrath against wickedness is certain. And so there's nothing wrong with wondering, well, when is that going to come? When you know that it will come, you can ask when. God is also true, they said. God cannot lie. He says in Psalm 103, verse 9, he will not always strive with us nor keep his anger forever. There will be a point at which the mercy of God gives way to the justice of God. And in truth, God is faithful in all things, including his promise to pour out his wrath on unrighteousness. But before saying that God is holy and that God is true, they address him as Lord. The martyrs declare his holiness and truthfulness, but they call him Lord. And, and you might want to just circle that in your Bibles because this one is an interesting word. It, most of the time in the New Testament, when you read that word Lord, it's translating the Greek word kurios. But that's not the word that gets used here in verse 10. The word here in verse 10 is despotes, which is a word denoting complete authority and power. Most modern translations will translate this as how long, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Again, those who claim God's righteousness also trust God's sovereignty. Now we've seen the congregation of the martyrs and the cry of the martyrs. Look at the comfort of the martyrs in verse 11. And white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said to them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brothers that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. They're given white robes. These white robes picture, picture long flowing robes. It carries the idea of, of blessing and purity. And they're given the, the righteousness of Christ. Even as Jesus promised in Revelation 3, verse 5, that he that overcomes will be clothed in white clothes. The Lord hears their cry, and he is not indifferent to their cry. He hears them. He loves them. He reassures them. He clothes them with honor and dignity. And yet he also calls on them to endure the time with patience. He has a plan, and his plan includes, perhaps to our shock, more martyrs being killed for their obedience to the word and their testimony of Christ. 
The time's not far. It's a little season, but it's not now. And so the Lord says, you're asking how long? We're not there yet. There are fellow servants and there are brothers whose martyrdom must still happen first. We're not, you're, you're not all here yet. In his sovereign plan, the Lord has determined when the last of everything takes place. He told Abraham, for example, hundreds of years before it would come to pass, that his descendants would possess the promised land, but that they were not going there at that moment because, quote, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full, right? Those people who were going to cleanse from the promised land, they're not as bad as they're going to get. But there comes a time when they've done the very last wicked thing I'll allow them to do. And then your descendants will possess the land. God warned his own people in Judah that their sin would bring judgment. And eventually the mercy of the Lord gave way to wrath. And that time came in 2 Chronicles 36, 16, when it says the wrath of the Lord rose against his people and there was no more remedy, right? There There was no more patience for it. Paul wrote in Romans 11 that the Lord knows when the last of his elect will be saved. He talks about the the fullness of the Gentiles, the complete saving of those Gentile elect and the Lord's attention is going to return to Israel. The Lord has a plan for his glory and in his omniscience, he knows and in his omnipotence, he executes every step of that plan. The voice of those who are martyred for faith in Christ call for the righteous justice of God on the wicked. And in the purpose and plan of God, the day is soon coming when there's going to be justice for them. In fact, God's judgment of the earth has already begun when these seven seals have started to open, though the ultimate judgment is still to come. We'll see more of that judgment in the sixth Seal, which we'll also consider in three basic headings. First, opening of the sixth seal brings the signs of God's wrath in verses, starting at verse 12. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal and lo, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became as blood and the stars of heaven fell into the earth even as a fig tree casts her untimely figs when she's shaken of a mighty wind. And the, heaven de- de- and the heaven departed as a scroll when it's rolled together and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Just like the first five seals, John sees the lamb break the sixth seal in verse 12. And when that seal is broken, there are signs of God's wrath. The earth begins to tremble and quake. The sun goes dark. The moon looks like blood. Stars fall. The description in verse four is the heavens departed as a scroll when it's rolled together, right? The sky opens up and I don't know how to explain what that looks like. There are heavy winds blow. It, it, he, he describes this, there's this uh, falling stars 
that not just one or two streak across the sky, but it's like looking at a fig tree when a heavy wind blows it and lots of figs fall down. I don't know that we can really imagine what this will be like. We could speculate that, you know, the earthquakes across the earth cause volcanic eruptions and that smoke and ash cover the sky and it darkens the sun and so when the moon kind of glows through it red and maybe an asteroid or meteor shower appearing like falling stars John does his best to describe the real events that he sees and he's also describing these events in the light of other scripture right he's not just seeing these things and saying well I have to come up with a description as he sees these things he recognizes no, I've, I've read about that before. We see similar descriptions in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Just so, to give you a, an example of each, in Joel 2, the prophet is warning in Joel chapter 2 in the near term about a plague of locusts that God's going to send. But listen, because his description goes beyond that and his description might sound familiar. Joel 2, verses 10 and 11. The earth shall quake before them. The heavens shall tremble. The sun and the moon shall be dark and the stars shall withdraw their shining. And the Lord shall utter his voice before his army for his camp is very great for he is strong that executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible and who can abide it? So not only does John use that language and sort of match that language about the shaking and the, the, the sun and moon going dark, but he also borrows from Joel's last phrase where Joel said, the day of the Lord is great and terrible and who can abide it? And down in verse 17, John sort of repeats that. The great day of his wrath is come and who's able to stand? But John heard this from other sources than just Old Testament prophets. He heard it directly from the mouth of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 24, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. When the justice of God rains down on earth, in the first four seals, we, the people on earth might have some question in their minds about the source of the calamities that are befalling them. But by the time the sixth seal is open, the signs of God's wrath in the sun and the moon and the stars give this cosmic confirmation that he alone is the source of what befalls the world. It happens on his timetable, by his plan, for his glory. Those are the signs of God's wrath. Now see the subjects of God's wrath in verse 15. The kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. It seems evident that the main idea of verse 15 is to tell us when this judgment starts to fall, it is comprehensive in its scope. In the eyes of God, the only, there is only one determining 
consideration of whether justice will come down in the form of receiving his righteous comfort or enduring his holy wrath. That one consideration is your position in regard to his son, Jesus Christ. The Apostle Peter says in Acts 10, verse 34, that God is no respecter of persons. Literally, that means God does not look at a person's face. He does not give credence to their clothes. He doesn't regard their riches. He is not awed by their authority. Each of the descriptions in verse 15 are meant to tell us that there will be justice for all. Going through that list, when you look at verse 15, the kings of every country, those considered nobility within their society, the wealthiest, the military officers, the strongest soldiers, everyone from slaves to free people, every individual in the human race will be brought to account by God's holy justice. No one is exempt. No one is overlooked. No one's given a a pass. And no one will find a place to hide. Though they will try, the description is they'll hide in dens, in caves, in, in rocky crevices in mountains, hoping to escape the judgment of God. But God is omnipresent and omniscient and omnipotent. That is, he is in all places. He knows all things. He has all ability to work his will. And the inhabitants of the earth cower in fear. And to be sure, they know at this point who they're cowering from. Look at the source of God's wrath in verses 16 and 17. They said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand? Just for the purposes of this point, I was really tempted to come into the pulpit this morning with my all-time favorite sermon illustration, Flannel Graph Jesus. You know, that Jesus you were taught about in Sunday school, you remember him? Incredibly Caucasian, very often blonde hair, entirely two-dimensional. I think it's fair to say he lacks the the depth of his real-life counterpart. Flannel graph Jesus is always non-threatening, always comforting. He is nothing like the Jesus of Revelation chapter 6. We have become so enamored with the idea of meek and mild Jesus that we can hardly recognize that he is so much more than that. Listen, he's not less than that. He is the meek and mild Jesus, but he is more than that. As hard for it as it is for us to wrap our minds around this, we sometimes get a glimpse in these startling juxtapositions that are presented to us in Scripture if we just stop and think about the words we're reading. The comprehensive collection of all kinds of people on the earth. Who is it that they're hiding from? Well, verse 16 has our answer. They're hiding, it says, from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. 
You ever just stop and think about those words, the wrath of the lamb? You grasp how strange that sounds? Is there any animal on earth that strikes fear as much as like a ferocious lamb? But if we remember the context, this lamb we saw in this vision of God's throne room in chapter 5, this lamb is also the lion of the tribe of Judah. This lamb alone has authority to take the scroll from the hand of the Father. He alone has the ability to break the seals off of that scroll and execute God's plan for history. And when he does, we've seen, he's, it's been calling forth these apocalyptic writers and he assures the martyred saints the time of their vindication is coming soon. And he opens the sixth seal and when he does so, the same individual the world has ignored and thought was non-threatening, they find is the very source of the judgment that they're, they only hope that he will ignore them. Yet for all the wicked world, they will recognize that this is the, the hand of the one who sits on the throne. They want to avoid the face of the one on the throne and they want to avoid the wrath of the lamb. And even though they recognize that, they are still completely devoid of any spiritual wisdom. They know this is the great day of God's wrath. It's clear the wrath is coming from the person of Jesus himself. And yet the description is that they're hiding in caves and in crevices and in mountains and they're begging for the mountains and the rocks to fall on them and crush them as if somehow an untimely death would protect them from what they're afraid of. Look at verse 16. And they said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. If they got their wish, if, if a mountain of rocks could suddenly hear and grant their desire to be crushed to death, what would that accomplish? Would it get them what they want? What they want is hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne. Would they get what they want or would, their, would the fulfillment of their wish, would their, would their own death merely usher them into the very presence of the one who sits on the throne when they will be face to face with their righteous creator and they w- would wish that they could be huddling back in their cave. When the great day of God's wrath comes, there will be no one able to stand it. There will be none able to escape it. The only avenue for escaping the wrath of God is to repent of your sin and trust Jesus as your Savior. Through him, the wrath of God on wickedness has already been satisfied when he took the sin of all his people and he bore it on the cross before the Father, he absorbed the wrath of God in our place. When it comes to the disciples of Jesus, those who believe in him, listen, it's the cross of Jesus where the wrath of God was satisfied. The wrath of God has already, the justice of God has already been executed against our sin in the person of Jesus. Jesus. 
And without him, there's no place to hide. There's no way to escape. There's no one who will endure. In this time, the Lord Jesus, in his mercy, has declared the gospel of Jesus so that sinful people might escape his wrath. You know, he seemingly prefers that. Ezekiel 18, verse 23, God says, Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord, and not that he should return from his ways and live? The pleasure of the Lord is that the wicked should turn from their sin and turn to faith in Jesus Christ, finding eternal life in him. In the purpose and plan of God, the day is soon coming when there will be justice for all. What will God's justice mean for you?